Hello, everyone. Welcome to Faded Mates. This is Jennifer Prokop speaking. No kidding. (laughs) I will be your host today as we interview the wonderful Sarah McLean, author of Heartbreaker. Oh, thank you. One of these again, you guys. (laughs) I believe before we started, she said another fucking book, but I'm not gonna... I didn't mean it that way. I, what I meant was another great book from Sarah. Well, <laughs> you meant another fucking book, right? Because oh, they, and that, they, this they book do. bangs. This book really <laughs> does bang. Oh my God, New Yorkers. Adriana and I went to this amazing place called the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn uh, this weekend. And it is so cool. It's in downtown Brooklyn. It's like a lending library. Of oh, that's cool. Remarkable. It's it's half library, half bookstore, half cafe. I didn't, I'm not good at math. Um, and then, like, if you're a member, you, there's an event space. And if, and if you're a member, there's apparently this, like, secret upstairs space where you mm. can go and, like, just be a member of cool. the Center for Fiction. And we went there because they had, they have this deal with Netflix this summer screening series with Netflix where um, they're screening adaptations and other things from Netflix that are That's Netflix cool. properties and then there's like a discussion about them but um now I can't remember what brought this up but I really I just want to say if you're in New York if you're in Brooklyn especially you can become a member of the Center for Fiction and I'm sort of like I maybe want to be a member of this place but would I go there is the question would I get myself out of my house to go there and you know but it would be nice it sounds nice but we should do I wonder if we could do our live there, Jen. Ooh, I like that idea. Mm. We're talking about a New York live in the spring, you all. Yes, we are. We are talking about a Chicago live in the fall, but it was really, honestly, way faster than we thought. And so... But you'll see us. Yes. Well, I mean, you can see us. We won't be, like, doing We our... won't be faded mates. So Sarah and Adriana, I don't know who else, some other romance authors, I assume, will be on a panel... At Printer's Row Lit Fest in Chicago, the weekend of September 10th and 11th. I believe that your panel is on Saturday, whatever day that is. I believe you. According to Adriana, it's happening on the 10th. And I will not be on the panel, but I will be in the audience. And maybe afterwards we can find a cool place to hang out with our fans. So, Oh, that would be fun. Let's do a meetup like we did the last time. Listen, Printer's Row, no offense to all the rest of you, uh, book festivals, especially mm-hmm. not on this particular episode of Fate of Mates. <laughs> I love you all. Um, no, but seriously, that Printer's Row book festival, which yeah. I used to do every year before the pandemic because I love it so much and not just because it's in Chicago and Jen is there. It, In fact, I think that was the first time we ever met That's in person. That's the first time we met in person. It is. Um, yeah. And But Printer's Row is a great festival. The people who go are yeah. so fun. You can meet other writers. You can meet other readers. And we have always, I've always done a meetup after the event. And so we need to figure out how to do that this time. So stay tuned, Chicago. Love Sweet Arrow, I think, is going to be a vendor. So there's also going to definitely be like romance stuff. I'm not sure. I'll check, but I think maybe potentially Kelly might also be a vendor. So that would mean, like, if there's, you know, a romance panel and romance people and romance stuff, it's now a romance destination. Very, very fun. I made it so. We'll put details on all our social media and you can find out. I mean, if we're going to do... Wait, can we just talk about another romance destination that you will not be at, but I will be at? There is an event at the end of September in Boston 
um, that is like a rom, it's called Romcon. And it's at the Concord Public Library on September 24th. We'll put links in show notes. There are a ton of amazing romance novelists who are going to be there to talk about books and sign books and on panels. Um, lots of fun people who you know, including Loretta Chase. Oh, what? So, oh, my goodness. That's amazing. That is a big one. We're super excited. That is an all-day affair on September wow. 24th. In Concord, Massachusetts. Can I say one more thing about my, my my personal bookish plans, everybody? So I have to take little romance back to college, Labor Day weekend, when there are no events going on because Labor Day weekend. But there, he goes to school in Connecticut, and there's a place called the Book Barn in Niantic. Niantic. And apparently it is like four different buildings of used books, and I drop him off at college on Saturday. I don't go back to Chicago until Monday. And then I was like, wait, what am I going to do with myself? And I was like, I'm going to get a hotel room in Mystic, which seems very nice. Adorable. And I am going wait, to... Wait, why am I not invited to this hotel room in Mystic and this book board adventure? You absolutely are invited to these I want to come. Please come. Oh, my God. Would yeah. That be amazing? Wait, we should, li- we should Instagram live from there. It's happening, you guys. We just... We ordained it. So that whole Sunday, I just want to, like poke around Niantic and look at the book barn. That's my whole plan. I love it. Me too. I'm coming. You can't Good. get me away. I want you to come. That sounds amazing. That would be really fun. Look, see, sometimes we plan things on the fly. Okay. So, Sarah. Yes. This is all a distraction from our real purpose here today, which is to talk about Heartbreaker, which came out yesterday. <gasps> yes. Heartbreaker, number two in the Hell's Bells series. That's right. And as everybody knows, when Sarah has a new book out, I interview her about the book, and we talk about the book, and it's just like an opportunity for us to talk about, like, the the talk about books, but we're talking about, like, Sarah's book, which usually she doesn't let me do. So, Sarah. Yes, Jen. Okay, I have questions. Okay. Um, of course. But let's start off by just talking about Heartbreaker. Like, what is it? What's the plot? Tell us about, like, what we need to know. So Hell's Bells began last year. This weekend, this week last year, yeah. uh, Bombshell came out. And Bombshell was the first in the series and introduced a girl gang, which in Bombshell did not have a name. But <laughs> yes. Because it didn't, nobody had really realized that this girl gang existed. But in Heartbreaker, they get a name. And their name is the Hell's Bells. Well, and I had missed this the first time around. That's like a tiny little spoiler. Tommy is the one who, Tommy Peck, who will be the hero of book three. Tommy Peck, who is really all Jen is here for. Like, to be honest, this is this episode is filler until Jen gets to do the episode she really wants yeah, the, to do. Like, you remember <laughs> when, like, Sarah was like, it's Rune Week? And it was just like, that's me when it's going to be Tommy and Imogen Week. But they do have some other names. The Gossamer Gang, Crinoline Chaos, Muslin, May- Muslin Mayhem. Yeah, the newspapers really yes. like uh, alliterative Like alliterations for them. There is a sort of sense that these women are causing. Now the women are involved. And nobody likes it when the women get involved. And and they are, like, they, in the last book, um, in Cecily and Caleb's book, which was Bombshell, they brought down a bad dude who had been bad to both of them. Um, in this book, they will bring down another bad dude and some others along the way. Um, and the idea was, you know, I, I wanted to write a gang 
of like v- vigilantes <laughs> slash superheroes slash um, you know, the A-team, like a, a collection of women with a very particular set of skills. And so um, there was Cecily, who is the bombshell. There is Adelaide, who is a thief. There is um, Imogen, who is uh, chaos. <laughs> Just And an explosives expert. Come on. Yeah. And then the Duchess, who is the one who rules them all. And each one of them will get a book. So those are like the four main ones, right? But in this book, we really get a sense of actually the many other women that are part of Hell's. Yes. Books. So you, so Cecily's book was very bombshell. Was very like London focused. Like we didn't mm-hmm. leave London. Um, Adelaide and Claiborne go on a road trip, and so and part of why. I really enjoyed writing this road trip. I love road trips in general because, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I love them because you're constantly moving places, which means new people and new space. Yeah. Um, And I really like characters in space. And I also wanted to give a vibe of like this this network. It's not just these four. There is a network of women who are all working together to bring down, you know, bad men and people in general. So, but we see Maggie O'Tiernan again. Maggie owns their, what is their essentially peach pit, for those of you who are, you know, 90210 fans. And Maggie Central Perk, if you are Friends fans, right? (laughs) Exactly. Depending on your your level. Luke Maggie owns a place called The Place, very creatively (laughs) named. But she, where she was really important and, like, a, a central figure in Bombshell, she is just there to ground us in, you know, the space. And then we move out to meet other people who are working with the Bells. So the first chapter actually struck me as being very much like The Godfather. Stick with me here. For those of you who are fans of The Godfather, like or, like, watch those movies, there's always, like, a scene in a church. It's like a wedding or a baptism or a funeral where it's like everybody's in the same place ostensibly for this event. But really, it's a shifting of the power structure of the world, like, right, of the men, really, that that are sort of there, right? right? So it's like, you know, we're here for these, like, kind of coded, like, a baby is born, a woman is getting married, but often it's, like, the power structure shifting. So I really like this scene, and it's the first chapter, so I don't think it's a big spoiler to tell you that Adelaide is in a church to get married, and her, hus- her husband has been chosen by her father. It's a an arranged marriage, so yes. to speak. And so I don't know if you were thinking that, but I was really like, I, I love that whole sort of the pageantry of it. I mean, what I've really committed to doing for myself at the beginning of this whole series was, um, we talked about this like id idea, Jennifer mm-hmm. Lynn Barnes's id idea. And um, I was really inspired. I am What I love about that concept is, you know, that the way that you write a book that people really love, right, a, mm-hmm. a book that brings people a lot of enjoyment is to write a book that brings you enjoyment. And yeah. that's obviously, like, the writing of books is not always a joyful experience for writers. <laughs> but what is a joyful experience for writers is to fill books with things that you love. Yeah. Like, moments that you love. Like, I can't... I can't write a slow wor- walk away from an explosion because there's <laughs> sure. just no way to put that, to translate that to actual print. But um, what I can do is I really love, I love scenes that like, you know, yeah. screw up a church. Like I, because <laughs> right. I mean, I was sure. raised Catholic, like 
Messing yeah. with the church is part of the part of the it's part deeply of coming, imprinted. It's part of like unstitching your your yeah. like your birth Catholicism. Yeah, so. but and and this scene and the next one, right, which happens five years later, sort of when yeah. the the kind of now the book really opens, like Bombshell really are it's like reading an action movie. Yeah, right? cold opens. Cold open. I mean, it was designed as a cold yes. open. Like uh, when you when you watch like any James Bond movie, right? Or yeah. a Marvel movie, or like any of the movies that like begin with kind of a in full action moment. Yeah. And you know, there's this rule in in genre that you're supposed to like start with action. And I was like, well, what if you start with Actual action. action. Like, what if you start with, like, a fist fight or a, you know, explosion? And how does it look when you refract that through the lens of a romance novel? And, of course, it looks like the hero is there. Yes. You know, like, I mean, there is no... they Both characters are on the page. Well, right from the jump. whole book. So. Which is probably why I loved it so much. This is will be a spoiler-free episode, but we're going to talk about, like, some of the opening pieces. So Adelaide is at her father's office. She's breaking in to steal something in particular, but while she's there, she finds this box. Now, those of you in the Marvel Universe fans, I was it like, looks oh, like a Tesseract. She stole the, she stole the Tesseract. Great. Good job, Adelaide. <laughs> That's going to be fine, right? Um, and... And Claiborne, right, appears. And is That's so like, funny that you just said that. That literally never occurred to me until <laughs> this exact moment. That's why they pay me the big bucks, Sarah. I know. It's true. It's just actually because I stumbled upon a guy on YouTube who makes puzzle boxes. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to put one in a book. Anyway. So she, so he appears and he, you know, he essentially, he's trying to get this puzzle box back, this cube. It's like this, it just appears to be a solid wooden block. And he says, that's mine. And she's like, is it, though? (laughs) And then, you know, I mean, like, they run through the alley. They jump onto a barge. It's great. And then what I really loved, everybody, is they just get right to kissing. Yeah. I mean, why wait? Why wait? (laughs) So you have just been teaching a class. I know you've done it for several years, but you just wrapped up, um, about plot, right? So how did the plot for Heartbreaker come together, like, in your brain? How does it work? Well, this book felt um, very—it's interesting because I knew I wanted to write a road trip. I knew I wanted to get them out of the—I wanted to get them out of London— um, but I am really interested in this series feeling like an adventure, right? Mm-hmm. Feeling like I want it to feel like you've had action. Like yeah. you and and so for me, the action, the the question was, you know, how do you drive these two people together? Um, you know, for the whole thing. And so, you know, there is the cold, what, what I refer to as the cold open, that sort of first scene, um, not Adelaide. So the the beginning, the the scene in the church is Adelaide becoming a bell. So every book will begin, you should all know every one of these books begins with a prologue that shows the, the one of the four women becoming a bell. Um, and so, so that's sort of separate. But the first scene is a really action-heavy scene. Um, and it immediately, it ends with a, a revelation, you know, Adelaide meeting the bells, and then this kind of revelation that these two characters are tied together in a different way, too, in, like, a separate way. 
the hero and heroine meaning. And so for me, it was very much like, how do I get as, how do I pack as much action and plot, right? External stuff into the first quarter of this book so that essentially there is enough gas in this engine to get us through a road trip. Right. And all the way to Scotland, which is where they're going, before bringing them back to London for, like, the final set piece ending, which is a McLean special. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of stuff jammed into the front of this, right? Yeah, the idea was, like, can I make the first quarter as propulsive as possible so that essentially tangling up so many different chords that it takes the entire middle, like, the second and third quarter of this book to unravel them all. And then there's, when you get to the third quarter, something else is happening. Like, the, like then, like, I, so the idea is you fill the whole balloon, right? You fill the whole balloon with air, or you fill, to use the same metaphor, you fill the tank with gas, right? All the way to full. And then you drive it until it is almost empty. Yeah. And then you fill the gas again. But I wanted to fill that gas tank the second time as close to the end of the book as possible. Like, this was, this book was really an exercise in, like, how do I write a book this way? This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Alexandra Harvey, author of How to Marry a Duke, book two in her The Cinderella Society series. One of the great things about this series, we've talked about it a few times, is that it is tied together by these women are goddaughters of a duke, but they are no um, missish ladies, right? They are chasing traitors, digging up bodies, and outwitting treasure hunters. And in this one, Meg Swift um, has a tiny problem with stealing because she is doing everything she can to keep her estates, essentially the people on her estates, still, you know, eating and, and you know, having roofs over their heads. But... All of a sudden, she's got a problem. Dougal Black, the local miller, has just discovered that he is a, actually a duke. I love a Oops, I'm a duke. It's my favorite. And Meg realizes that she is the perfect person to help him fend off a battalion of debutantes. And since he has to get married anyway, and she understands what a duke's world should look like, she might as well marry him before the Prince of Wales chooses his bride for him. Perfect. You can find How to Marry a Duke in print or ebook right now. And you can follow Alexandra Harvey on Twitter or Instagram at Alexandra H on Twitter or Alexandra Harvey Author on Instagram. That's Alexandra with a Y. Thanks to Alexandra for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. Often in a Sarah McLean book, in the Sarah McLean universe, the antagonist is really like society, Mm -hmm. right? The antagonist is essentially like the rules that govern our lives that the characters, for whatever reason, are like chafing against. Mm -hmm. But in this book, you have the bully boys. You actually have like actual bad guys, Right? Mm -hmm. And so I found myself thinking, like, it's got to take different, it's got to take a different kind of pacing and plotting when there are actual bad guys. And there are multiple bad guys from different levels of society working together. Right. You know, there's a lot of, you know, there are, like, the rich dudes who deserve punishment 
still here because rich dudes deserve punishment in Sarah McLean novels. <laughs> yeah, it's a different kind of villain. The villain also they're chasing like the chase, the road trip, the the goal that they are chasing is Adley quite literally is trying to get to a woman she is attempting to keep safe. Yes. Um all while keeping her own secrets from Claiborne, which is a tricky thing for somebody to do while you're, you know, while you're falling in love. Um, She keeps a very significant secret from him about what they are getting, like, what will happen. Right, once they get where they're going. Exactly. Yeah, and that's it, right? Like, the layers and layers and layers that just have to get unpeeled between these two. Right. And then, well, but it had to be that way, I think, because Adelaide was born, she's, she is the daughter of the bully boys, right? So right. she the reckon it had to be reckoned with the here on in this book. Both of these characters are like seen and unseen. The way the world perceives me versus who I really am is like a really big part of both of their stories. And sometimes that's hard to carry off if they have the same problem, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. But I found in this case, it's, it. you know, I thought obviously it really worked, but she talks a lot about no one ever notices me. I, I can move around through society because no one notices me. I, you know, the Duchess is essentially just like says, tells everybody it's her cousin or something, right? Some distant cousin. I was really curious about this. This is the first book I've, the first time we've talked about one of your books where I've been doing like a lot of editing, right? Like I have a new way of looking at books. And one of the things I talk a lot about to my authors is like how important it is as a stage that they are noticing each other. Right. He's been noticing her for two books. For all along. And she didn't, she didn't notice that, right? But that's like all there is, right? Isn't that kind of the whole (laughs) ballgame? So that part, like, very specifically, because Kelly is a woman who's used to not being noticed, right? But that's not, you know, Lily is noticed, but then, like, does everything she can to not be noticed, right? But it is not your typical McLean heroine who is just, like, you know, I can fade right into the background. Yeah. Well, I mean, she wants to be noticed by Claiborne, right? Right. And... Internally, she understands that, like, people don't notice her because she is without country, right? Like, she she is north. Like, there's a lot of discussion in this book about, like, what you are north of the river, right? Like, in Mayfair, like, in money. Yeah. And what you are south of the river, you know, in Lambeth and the South Bank, which is, like, crime, right? Like, there's poverty and crime there. And so, there, I mean, there's crime on both sides, different kinds different of Different kinds of crime. Right? <laughs> um, so, the... So, but for her, right, like, living outside of notice as a child kept her on her father, in her father's good graces, right? She was one of the best pickpockets on the South Bank. And so, like, she was trained to be unnoticed. And now in Mayfair, she sort of has to be unnoticed because if anybody asks too many questions about her, it all It all falls apart. Yeah, uh, pear-shaped. Now, there are other ways, though, in which their relationship does play into, like, what I think of as being, like, very, like, core story things for you. So Mm. a big one is not for me, right? That, like, these two people, when they are going to, like, be set up 
into this are yep. like they know they're not for each other, right? There's something forbidden. There's just no way. Right. They can't conceive of it, right? That plays a big part in it too, but it comes along with its corollary, which is Adelaide in the big, in the cold open, looks at Claiborne and thinks a worthy opponent. Oh, does she? <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. And I thought those two things together, right, like that that magnetism of like not for me but a worthy opponent are real. I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's McLean. Well, because right they are, right? They're right. Like this yes. book is about a race. They are racing to Scotland against each other. They are not together. Right. And right. I mean, of course they're together, you guys. <laughs> but like they – it's a game. It's – the – you know, it's fun in games, the the race itself. Like, they're Adelaide, she, there's, you know, when they get to the first posting in, right, the first goal, she, like, she's kind of fucking with him. Like, she's like, I beat you here, and now I'm going to show you all the other ways I can, you know, mess with you. Right. And nobody's ever messed with Clayton, Claiborne, you know? I think this is one of the few books that I've written where the heroine feels not for me more than yeah, the hero. Yeah, right. Exactly. She's the one who thinks not for me. She's keenly aware of class and money and birth and power. You know, these are the characters you are interested in writing, but to put these two together mm. also seemed, like, new and interesting, right? Because... She really, even though she thinks, like, not for me and a worthy opponent, also is determined to best him at every single stop. Like, there's no, there's nothing missish about her. Mm-mm. Well, there can't be, right? She can't afford that. No. Like, well, being missish, being pretty, being, like, being gentle or soft in any way is not how Adelaide has ever won. No. And she also has the temper. So that's the part, too, is, like, seeing her kind of rooted in Hell's Bells. We get a really keen sense of how these other women have helped her kind of become who she is, right? Whereas Claiborne is the one who seems very alone, right? Like, that really seemed kind of flipped in some ways. Now, my question about Claiborne, though, is he and Adelaide have kind of a run-in in Bombshell, where he is a real stick in the mud, yeah, he's a real asshole, yeah. He's a real asshole to her. When you do that, right, you, like, seed a, a kind of couple in one book, how hard, like, did you want it to change? How do you deal with it? that? Anytime you put characters on the page in an earlier book, you are locking doors, yes. right? And that is a particular challenge in this book because the moment where they go head-to-head in Bombshell... He really comes for her, mm-hmm. and she is – he embarrasses her in that yeah. moment. And he – what he's essentially trying to do, it's revealed in Heartbreaker that, like, he was aware of, like, the danger that she was putting herself in in that moment, and he just, like, did what he could to get her out of there. And we see that in Bombshell, but we don't see it through Adelaide's POV. We see it through Cecily. Like, Cecily notice Cecily sees, Cecily sees something it, later right. and is like, oh, he's not the worst. Like, he's clearly not the best, but he's not the worst. Right. But, you know, when you get to... This book, so there were things, right? Like, they had to, they both had to remember that that 
run-in happened. There had to be a reason why that run-in went the way that it went. Um, that was in the villain's home in Bombshell. Um, it had to be a situation where, um, again, going back to being noticed, like Adelaide needed to believe that like he had never noticed her before or since. And of course, Clayton Claiborne had to have <laughs> noticed her every second of every day from the moment he first met her. I mean, that's just the rule. That's the, right. Well, and he he <laughs> I mean, does, right? But there's this great scene where they're, like, riding horses and her hat flies off and he, like, it's like this banner of red hair flies out and he is... She's always so buttoned up. Yes. He's never and seen he's, her hair. And he, this is a, a man who we understand is deeply paying attention to her and he is so like oh my god it's her hair I mean it's so great it's like you know what I mean it's just like it reminded me of like Dane with Jessica's gloves right like I just oh my gosh I'm getting my hands on this right so it's really interesting the way what a poor dummy I know well and Here's the other part that's really funny, Sarah. And then a thing happens and it's funny. And that, right. I'm not going (laughs) to give any, see, no spoilers. I know, but still. (laughs) The thing that was also really funny for me was I was thinking about my first experience of reading this. I read like a Word document and Mm. it's like halfway through that she calls him Henry. And I was like, his name's Henry? (laughs) Like, I had no idea. He's just Claiborne for the entire book, right? Thank you, Kate Claiborne, for your, the donation of your name. And Megan Frampton for Adelaide's last name. And everyone right now might be wondering about me, but don't worry, because Imogen is coming. Um, <laughs> that's, that's me being an asshole, but it's not Imogen. Um, so I think that that was even, like, when you're reading it, those, like, moments where they um, revealed themselves to each other felt, like, so powerful because they are both so, They're both like, so locked down. Well, and that's why I thought it would be really interesting to talk about kind of that, like, surface versus underneath, right? One of the things, one of my favorite things about Adelaide is, so where she came from on the South Bank, there are stories about her and how you, essentially, how she got out of their neighborhood and what has happened to her. She's like this mythological figure almost. And then... In London, in Mayfair, the ballrooms, there's a whole nother set of stories about who she is, right? So this sort of sense of, like, storytelling, who we are when, like, who we tell ourselves about, like, you know, who we are. And for the for the Duke, right, for Claiborne, it's this box. It's like, it's like the same thing, like, right, what's on the surface, this, he's literally literally locked in there Uh and the whole book is this like unraveling where it's like piece by piece she gets to open this thing and figure out who he is like so like the box itself right the tesseract becomes a really compelling story but also a really compelling symbol for what these two are gonna have to go through to like find their happily ever after Right. So this box is a puzzle. It's a puzzle box, right? So if you've ever seen a puzzle box, you know, many of you have probably seen like a puzzle box where it's like a very quick, like secret opening. But the people who make these boxes are remarkable and they can take hours to open, you know, with all the like tips and the sort of tricks that happen. And it became interestingly, like at the beginning, There was a lot of sort of, I went around and around about what was in this box. Like, what Mm -hmm. could be the thing that was in this box? And um, 
ultimately what was fascinating is the way that I figured out what was in this box was how Adelaide and Claiborne treated this box. You know, the there were moments, there are moments where he offers her like to give her another more access to him via the box and she like she thinks she says no and then there's the reverse that happens too where she wants access and he you know he basically makes he there are a lot of deals in this book there's there's yeah, a lot of, of stealing in this book because it's a McLean novel but um the you know he'll give the price is too high right yeah. for and he knows he knows where the price needs to fall in order for to give her access um so the box becomes yeah I mean a sort of a pretty obvious metaphor for... It reminded me a lot of Lothair. Remember, Lothair has his puzzles. Yeah, he has his... Right? And they're not puzzles like we all did during the pandemic, because it also reminded me of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like, Ellie at one point says, essentially, um, to Lothair, like, she, like, diagnoses him almost, right? She has, like, a you know, a degree in psychology or whatever. She's like 12 years old, but yeah. Yeah. You know, you're, you're <laughs> alone, right? You're alone all the time. Like it, right. Like your fascination with puzzles and your, the way that you think about the world and like steps, right? Like you go through this series of steps and you'll get the outcome you want. Really reminded me of how Claiborne essentially approaches, I mean, not just this puzzle, but just sort of, you know, he's got a problem with his brother, right? That's a, a big part of what drives the... Right. His brother is in love with the girl that the Bells are trying to save or at least protect. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I just found myself thinking, like, so much about, like, like just, you know, puzzles and boxes and what's hidden away and... Right. The way we lock ourselves up. Yeah. Well, and this is clearly something you think about a lot. Like, unlocked is one of my, a word you like to use to describe people. Yeah. Someone becomes unlocked or, you know, even in Wicked in the Wallflower, right, her her knowledge of locks. So this is, you know, again, a... It's just a little McLean. It's a McLean. You could start to see. You see it. A motif. <laughs> you see... Thank you. A motif. That's a nice way of saying. This is... <laughs> Very samey, Sarah. <laughs> it's not, though. I, it's actually, it's not. It's a different kind of book for me. I think yeah. people will be surprised by it. Well, so that's my next question, which is, how you have talked a little bit about how you challenge yourself with the book, but how did this book challenge you right back? I mean, I think that's, I think that's it. I think it, the structure of this book is, like, plot heavy in the first quarter, fun and games in the second quarter very internal in the third quarter and then like a comfortable ending for me. Like, I feel like when everybody gets the end of this book, if they've read McLean books before, it will be like, Oh, here we are. Like this is Sarah again. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's because the ending is the most important thing to me. Like there was no question that that's what it's, I'm going to deliver. It scratches my itch as much as it scratches yours. Hopefully. I mean, the external conflict has to be structured when you're talking about, like, a quest, which is basically yeah. what this is. And I don't think I've ever written a quest. You have written road trips, but this is not really a road trip. It was a quest. There's an item that they are chasing. Yes. I mean, it's a person, but still, there is an item they are chasing. Right, right. Right, so I talk a lot when I, when I talk about conflict in books. I talk about, you know, when it gets too easy, you throw them a wrench. You, like, you have to gum up the works for a little while. Um, 
in this particular, like when there is a very concrete item that they are chasing, it's a different kind of story. And so, you know, I thought a lot about, well, what is it, you know, how did Thea Harrison do it? How did, you know, Mm. what are the Talisman High books look like? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's why, what's fascinating to me is I really thought people would come back from reading this book and say, oh, it's like, it's too much action. And what's interesting is that is the response from at least early reviewers is incredibly different than what I expected. So you never know. It just goes to, sh- it goes to show you just never know. Because there's a lot of discussion about how romantic it is from readers. Yes. And I was afraid it wasn't romantic enough. So, like, I don't know anymore. <laughs> this is, I think, this thing you and I were talking about, right? External versus internal, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a big external driver. Right. But every time they are together, which is all the book, it's just like them mining, like really like getting in the, you know, getting yeah. down in there and mining out, right? Their feelings, their fears, the things they're worried and afraid about, right? Well, and that's in part because, right, they're chasing his brother. Um, the quest is to reach his brother. So... And his wound, right, Claiborne's wound, is deeply related to his brother. So, like, all that past stuff comes out probably earlier than it usually does, you know. Or it starts to hint hint itself, like, right away from the first night that they're, you know, on on the road. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Kindle Vella, publishers of Rebecca Zanetti's Knife's Edge Alaska series. This is great. In the first season of this series, uh, Agent Ophelia Spalazzi is sent to the wilds of Alaska to investigate some unsolved murders, which puts her in contact with sexy sheriff Brock Osprey. He, this is great, missed a town meeting and was elected sheriff. So, (laughs) listen, if you don't show, you get to be sheriff. I mean, that in fact, if any, everybody's going to show up for every town meeting now. So, (laughs) you've got that city girl versus country boy action. She's so much more prepared for him. There's all these dangers they don't understand. And, of course, a woman sleuth a wounded hero, a small town, and probably they're going to have to snuggle to stay warm. Oh, well, I was going to say, I bet there's danger banging because Rebecca Zanetti knows the job. Of course she does. <laughs> uh, that's implied, obviously. But we are big fans of Rebecca here at Faded Mates, and we would love for you to be big fans of Rebecca, too. You can do that right now by heading over to Amazon.com slash Kindle dash Vela. That's V-E-L-L-A. And downloading immediately the first three episodes of Knife's Edge Alaska. After that, we're pretty confident you won't be able to stop. Thanks to Amazon, to Kindle Vela, and to Rebecca Zanetti for sponsoring the episode. Okay, so another big, like, adventure romance that came out this year is Something Wilder by Christina Lauren. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's... Also a quest. Also a quest. But the thing that is different... And this is where I want to talk about, like, the third act to me is at the end of Something Wilder, right, they go, they essentially find what they were looking for, but, like, it's almost more like Pulp Fiction-esque. You don't ever really know what's in it, but the characters do. And in this book... They, like, right, like, that it can't be because of what's in the box, right? Like, what's in the boxes instead is, like, just pure emotion that's been locked away. 
there's a really brilliant TikTok um, by a woman who's, I will put a link in show notes, is M. Kick is her, like, name, E-M-M Kick. And she talks about, she compares you and Lisa Klapis and your third ex. Mm-hmm. It's, like, three minutes, and it's brilliant. I know. And it, she really just, like, Nails it. She just drags me. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. You felt that way. I was like, thank God Sarah didn't see this three years ago or she would be the co-host of Faded Mates. And that's how I felt. She's um, really smart. And, she, yeah. and talk about somebody who, I mean, that she nails it. Yeah. In a way that I, like, never, I'm too close to it, right? I can't see it the way other people can see it. Her delivery is so spot on and so perfect that it's like, I would have been like, ah, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, here, let me just, like, get down to it. And one of the things she talks about is the third act. As she talks about in Clapus, the thing that happens in the third act is essentially something external, right? Someone's going to get kidnapped. There's a fire. The brother you know, turns Winterborn yeah. and, and Devin go over in a train. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, just something wild. And this is sometimes now when they, these things, a Clapus-like ending happens, that readers will sometimes kind of be like, eh, you, you can't do that. I'm like, yes, you can, right? It, it, something can come out of nowhere. This is the life. Right. But what she says is that in your books, in the third act, if Clapus is turning the plot up to 11, you are turning the emotions up to 11. Yes, because I like to break people. Yes. Lisa's probably nicer than me in real life. In fact, I can <laughs> confirm Lisa is nicer than me in real life. And that this is all about, like, the relationship to sort of the HEA, right? Is, like, what does, what is, like, the HEA look like if that's what you're turning up at the end of the book. I don't know that I have a question. I think I just wanted to talk about this because it's so brilliant. I I mean, yes, she said that and I was like, oh my God, it's true. And what's fascinating about that is that usually, somebody referred to this as a, a discovery writer to me this week. And I think that's really interesting. Like, so I don't know what anybody's wound is when I start the book. Like it takes me 70,000 words to really get there. Like, it takes me until the beginning of the third act, usually, to, like, figure out what what's happening emotionally for these characters. I can't start a book until I understand what, like, that set piece is, that the big explosion or the big conflict, the external piece that, like, fills the gas tank again, right, right. at the end of the book right. and gives you enough runway to finish out the emotional bits. So when she said that, I was like, that's so fascinating because I actually don't think of it as turning the emotions up to 11 there. In fact, if I had to think about something there, and I do, right? I don't start a book until I know that moment, the third act turning point. It's always external. It's like, you know, in in Daring and the Duke, it's like, well, ultimately he's going to have to burn this house down. So how does that happen, right? And so burning the house down, obviously, is a metaphor in that book for all of them, but, but I don't, you know, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as like, that's, that's the moment that the readers are going to remember like that happening. So for this book, I knew that at some point Adelaide was going to have to go back to the South Bank. Right. Right. Of course. And so, and she was going to have to go back there triumphant. Like, she was going to have to go back there stronger than she'd ever been and do a thing. And also, you know, her fear of being alone and, like, her fear of not being, like, her, like, all of the, all of the pieces of the puzzle had to come, come to pass there, right? Like, we had to see her, um, so, but obviously, 
this woman knew, this woman on TikTok knows me better than I know myself. Because, <laughs> like, the thing that well, gets you to that external piece is all internal. Of course. Always. Always. Um, right? And I, I mean, I like it. I, like, I want it to feel really dramatic. Yeah. I really do. Like, I don't. Right. It's, I want you to, I want to rip your heart out. Yeah. I'm not ashamed to say it. Well, I think that's why it's emotion, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a little pro tip. Um, <laughs> the other person who's doing really interesting things on TikTok is my friend Brittany, who has an entire murder wall, Listen, Brittany, I love you so much. I'm so wild about this. I had a meeting at Avon the other day, and everyone was like, do you know this person is doing a murder wall about your books? <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll get to hopefully meet her when she's here, when you're here in Chicago. I would love that. I want to take you for drinking, Brittany. She lives in my neighborhood, and she's awesome. I have a couple other, like, quick questions, some other things. Um, Callie's brother, Benedict, is hanging out there, and everybody's always asking you, you know, what's going to happen. And here, I'm not bringing that for that reason, because I know Benedict's never going to get a book. But it made me laugh, because there is no way anyone reading this book is going to have any hopes or dreams that Claiborne's brother is going to get a book. He is, like, essentially, like, a secondary romance in this book. He's a real himbo. <laughs> I mean, he really is. He's he a is. sweet pea. Yeah. And he was a lot of different. That's a good example for, the, for you know, those of you who are working on a manuscript, you know, who, you know, struggling. He was so many different things. Mm, interesting. In the drafts of this book. Um, at first, I was like, could he be an evil twin? Could he be, oh, yeah, right. I uh, you know, evil younger brother? Could he be, like, he was, he was written in multiple different ways and I finally sorted it out that, like, I think he's, like, I just wanted him to be, like, a very sweet boy. Yeah. Who, like, loves a very sweet girl, and they have gotten themselves into a pickle. Because sometimes that happens. In another universe, mm. they would have been the, for yes. the writer, they would have been the main Oh, a thousand percent. And there was a lot, I thought a lot about like, should I be writing a secondary love story here? Like, should there be like, should we be interstitial, should there be interstitial chapters with this couple like chasing across England? And, you know, because she's on the run from a very bad dude who is her father, right? That my father was not a very bad dude, but both of the, you know, main women in this book have terrible fathers. Um, And though different kinds. Um, and, uh, yeah, I definitely thought about that. Like, this is one of those situations where, like, the flip is these two running. Yeah. But truthfully, when I started really thinking about that, I was like, what's the conflict? It's just two people running, right? It's a romantic suspense. That's not your story, right? Like, it makes sense to me that you would not necessarily be interested in that story. And I think that's because of something else. Like, I know, obviously, this woman on TikTok knows, which is, over time, you're interested in this question of, like, criminality, right? And as opposed to what she says is, like, Lisa Kleypas is interested in industry, right? We got, like, Tom Severin. Mm-hmm. And I think there are two sides of the same coin. <laughs> I think probably she would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. But the thing I was also just kind of thinking about is Adelaide is really like our criminal here. The bells are. But yeah. there's very much a Robin Hood vibe specifically to it, right? Everything that is done is done 
it's like, it's not really criminality as much as it is deciding which rules can be broken in order to achieve a greater good. Well, yeah, because there are a couple things, right? So there's a quest that's going on in the book, and that's the overt external plot. But behind the scenes, going on beyond the view of the, when they're, I mean, obviously, when Adelaide and Claiborne are racing across England, they are not in London. But in London, the bells are doing a thing. Um, and so there are, you know, because this series is about all of these women working together. So like they, like they are doing a separate thing that's happening, you know, along, along in the past or in the, in, on the sidelines. And, you know, when you say the bells are criminals, yes, of course they are. Right. But right. I tend toward thinking, and this will surprise no one, Mm -hmm. especially you, I tend toward thinking of criminals in my, I mean, I've written a lot of criminals, right, in my books. I've more than more, I've written more criminals than not criminals in my yeah. books, I think. And, you know, what society might point to and say is a criminal. Um, but I'm really interested in, like, when crime is necessary. It's when crime becomes civil disobedience, essentially. Right. right? To yeah. bring equity or power or to reduce power from, you know, e- from bad people or to, you know, to claim space. Right. Civil disobedience. You will never see my characters kind of, like, speaking in Parliament, but Claiborne is, like, he is known as, yeah, well, you know, a man who is trying to do the right thing. Yeah, and it's, so it's, like, right there, again, that's, like, two sides of the same coin, like, coming at, they're, they're coming at this thing from a different vector. The thing that's great, so there's a, I'm gonna quote a little bit of the book for you, I don't typically do this, but Adelaide says to him, I am a woman alive in the world, your grace. My existence is politics, whether I care for it to be or not. It is not the politics, but the politicians. And he says, you do not think we can make change? She says. (laughs) What a jerk. (laughs) Right? Because he's he's never thought of it this way. He has so much power, yeah. Sure, right? And she says, I think large groups of powerful men have little reason to make change. Though I dare say your speeches are pretty. I was in a, I was in a mood that day. <laughs> yeah. But right, I mean, but like if you put that same speech in the in the, in mouth, the mouth of a of contemporary it. character, then they become strident. Yes, right? right. And so I think there's like freedom. That sucks. I know yeah. it does. I mean, because the truth is, is that my characters don't have to grapple with... They're grappling, obviously, with lots of terrible things. Like, the Victorian era was fucking terrible for women, for children, for people of color, for queer people. Like, it was the worst. But, like, I, I feel for contemporary writers who want to do this work. You know, I was reading... You know this. I reread, again, The Magic over the weekend. And um, I hadn't remembered this when we did our bodily autonomy episode, but on in Again the Magic, there is a miscarriage, there is an abortion, and um, there is a, like, very active queer side character. And, like, all of that, like, and we, we struggle so much, Jen, to, like, think of, like, a handful of five contemporary books that, that have right. abortion on page, right? Yeah. Or even a character who's had one, right? And it's, and Lisa Kleypas, like, the queen of the genre, is just like... Yeah, here, no problem. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think 
contemporary romance writers for whatever reason. And I, I don't know that it's publishers. Or I don't know if it's publishers saying it or if it's like readers saying it or why it is, but I think a lot of them feel like their hands were tied. And that sucks because this is the work of the genre. Right, right. But also so, politicians suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, well, we are learning that in a very um, real way. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, large groups of powerful men don't have a ton of reason to make change. And politicians don't have a ton of reason to, like, they will lose their jobs. Well, or it's, like, largesse, right? Like, I'm going to fight and do this, like, thing. And it's this little thing is going to be the right thing. But it feels divorced from their everyday reality. Yeah. And I think that's, like, really what the Hell Spells is showing us. is like, no, not at all. This is, right? Well, right, because ultimately, so this, like, this is sort of a spoiler for the rest of the series, right? But, I mean, it's not a spoiler, but it's a question for the rest of the series and one that I haven't answered yet, right? So this group of women is trying to smash patriarchy, right, in 1842 or whatever year it is. That doesn't happen, Right? We are here in 2022 still fighting the same fucking fights. So where do these women go? Right? Like what does the series, how does the series resolve itself? Yeah. Because it can't fix it. So where do, so, and that is, you know, I, I talk a lot about like you bite off, you take the bite and then you figure out how to chew it. So here I am, right? I've taken the bite. There are two books in the series. There are two more to come. They, I know what the third one is. The third one is a Scotland Yardsman at a time when police officers. I have a lot to say about police officers. So, you know, that'll be interesting, hopefully. <laughs> and then ultimately, like, where do we go from here? This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, the creators of microdose gummies. So microdosing and the concept of microdosing is commonly associated with psychedelics, wellness, performance enhancement, and creativity. And these gummies deliver the perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And I think, you know, Jen's been using them and um, Eric, our producer, has been using them. And he said that he's getting a real jolt of um, focus during the day when he uses them. Yeah. For me, I've been using them more for like my physical maladies, trying to fall asleep. I have restless leg syndrome that sometimes kicks in earlier in the day. And I found that these are like really effective ways to sort of treat those without having to take like a bunch of Tylenol or Advil. Yeah. I took one last week and it just like right before bed and I slept great. I fell right to sleep. I slept like a baby. So... Big fan. Microdose gummies are available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing, if you don't know much about it, just do a quick search online or go to microdose.com and use the code FADEDMATES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. You can find more links and information in the show notes, but that's microdose.com and the code FADEDMATES. Thank you to Lumi Labs for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. And I think the thing I wanted to sort of end with is talking about, like, community, right? Because this TikTok talks about it, but we have talked about it extensively before, too. Like, we used to get book series tied together by the relationships of men. Mm. And even with the soiled S's, it it was, like, two of the sisters, right? But it was a very personal 
right? It was like, it was, Serafina had been done wrong and her sisters sort of rally around her. Mm. And Lily is not one of their sisters, right? But here in this book, we really get like women in community. And I think you and I have really learned a lot about community from our listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And I, I, I'm going to cry a little. Like, I, like, when we put out an all call and say, like, hey, let's make phone calls to Kansas, our listeners are the ones, right? And, right. And I think that there's something really powerful in remembering, like, where this all goes is it's not about winning. It's about fighting. Right. It's about the team. I mean, ideally, it would be about winning. But We are still fighting these fights, but we are still here. Yeah. Right? And I, I also, like, it's hard, right? It's hard grappling with men in romance novels, like heroes, mm-hmm. at a time when it doesn't always feel like they're on our side, right? And... I think that part of what I want this series to be is, like, showing as many women on page as possible with partners who let them shine. And that is, you know, there are several characters. I mean, you see Caleb again here. You... Obviously, there's Claiborne, there's Claiborne's brother, there is a character who comes in at some point during the... Lucia, the highway woman. The highway woman. Lucia, the highway woman, who is in a poly... Yeah, she's in a poly relationship. Which, listen, this is on my list. I was like, wouldn't that make a terrific short story for a newsletter? (laughs) (laughs) We deserve nice things, Sarah. Yeah, listen, she's, she's fire, and those men love her. Yeah. And I want every person in the world to have a partner who lifts them up, but I want every woman who is feeling that it is rough out here right now to have a partner who really lifts her up and lets her lead and shine. And so that's what's going to, that's the vibe. That's what's going to be in all these books because that's what I want right now. And like, I got to decide. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you did it. I'm very happy. I'm very proud of this book because it, you know, I worked really hard on it (laughs) at a time when it wasn't, you know, super, it wasn't like the easiest thing in the world to write people falling in love. And um, I set myself a test and, you know, the next book doesn't look like this. It's different. Um, And that's the one thing, like, I think that's the promise I make is like every book is going to be different. So Right. Well, because you're challenging yourself with every book. I think yeah. that's really clear. So Imogen and Tommy are here on the page. Jen can attest. They are. There's a whole chapter. They were the babies. parts she liked the best. <laughs> no, you know what? Listen, I look, I am very excited about Imogen and Tommy coming, but this book is terrific and it's it's awesome. It's it's like its own thing, right? So don't it's not like a placeholder for me. I'm not like, oh, okay, I just reread the chapter with Imogen and Tommy. Like, I fell right back into rereading it. No, but know? there is a great moment where Claiborne, like, solidifies his place in the bells by looking at Imogen and saying, it's warm in here, isn't it? And Imogen's <laughs> like, yes, it is. Let's 
get it done. So great. It's so great. So I'm, you know, it's really second books. I've written two series now, or I will write, will have written two series where there are four books in the series. And second books are really fun for me because they actually are fun in games. Well, and we, when we talked with Sarah J. Moss, it was really like sort of, that was like the idea, like what can you do with a second book? Mm-hmm. And I think that you're going to really see that in action here, which is what's yeah. really cool. Because the third book has to tee up the end. Yeah. And uh, the fourth book has to really has do to the job. deliver it. Yeah. Like the first book has to introduce the series. The third, in this case, in a four book series, like I already know, I have not finished Imogen and Tommy's book. Uh, I have, and I already know what the end of that book looks like, like right. very clearly and, uh, relating like in the arc of this, the whole series. Yeah. But this book, I got to just play around. Can we talk about a couple little tiny things, which yeah. I think are great. Please. Um, you have retconned Duchess to be blonde in this book. Yes. Cause I want Hannah Waddingham. <laughs> I'm manifesting <laughs> Rebecca from Ted Lasso. Yes. As so Duchess. now when you read it, everybody, that's who you seem. Oh, that's and so it funny. Works, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah I and I, I announced it on Twitter and I was like, listen, don't, don't send me letters. <laughs> this is, we know. we know. Who it is. <laughs> it's, it's. Dear me. Hannah. <laughs> Um, you dedicated this book to your friend, Louisa. Yeah, my amazing friend, Louisa, who writes romance as Louisa Edwards and Lily Everett, um, who reads, has read all of my books before they have come out, um, who was there with me, like, trying to figure out how to, how to wiggle through the plot, you know, in the deep, dark days. But she is, as Mary Jane Wells says... In the dedication, she is the absolute best. I told her that I think she should make it her ringtone. Her ringtone. Because it's obviously. great. It is great. Um, but she is. I, I dedicate it to my very, very good friend. So speaking of Mary Jane Wells, everybody, you can stick around at the end of this for an audio excerpt of Heartbreaker. First, I think we're going to do the prologue and the first chapter. Which is the cold open and all and the Godfather. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, what is there anything like you want to, I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about, about Heartbreaker? Mm. I kept a big secret. Like Adelaide has like a secondary thing she's doing and I didn't talk about it at all. A matchbreaker. I hope that, uh, well, it's, I, it's very dirty. I'm told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, there, I saw a TikTok about it the other day and it was like, this is really filthy. Have historicals always been this filthy? <laughs> and you were like, yes. I mean, I will say that there was a point where, Louisa was like, I, was it Louisa who asked that question about spanking on Twitter? I think so, yes. Yeah, because <laughs> Claiborne has, like, pretty big daddy vibes. You, I mean, like, we're all friends now. It's He's got some real daddy vibes. There's, like, some praise kink in here. I mean, we haven't talked about the sex at all, but, like, if you liked our daddy episode, you might, you're going to, you're probably going to like Claiborne. I think Claiborne surprises himself, and that's what I kind of liked about it, right? It just mm-hmm. felt like these two were really, like, well-suited for it. They're going to figure it out there together. They're going to be fine. They're going to be, be fine. fine. You seem to have a lot of fun naming the local inns and taverns. <laughs> <I did. laughs> 
I did. They're literally like, I mean, the, it's it's not like the cock and the ball, but it felt that way. Yeah, similar. <laughs> yeah. Right? That kind of energy. Right, right. Yeah, no, uh, writing a road trip is really fun because you can, there are so many different people in every tavern. Um, peopling this world is very fun because you get to be north of the river and south of the river. Adelaide's father, who you will ultimately meet, is probably my favorite character in this whole book. Because even bad dudes have codes. He one of, he has these maxims that he has taught her and that, like, sort of still, like, right? And one of them is, like, speed ain't worth a damn if you ain't made, made a plan, right? And she has these things, like, sort of stuck in her head. And I love that, like, push-pull for both of them, really, about, like, yeah. who we are as adults, right? Kind of influenced by the people that, that raised us. Yeah. And the way, um, you know, I I mean... I really love class in books. Yeah. Like, I, I love no. this struggle of, I mean, that will surprise no one. Like, but when you have a guy who is the king of the South Bank, like, what does a duke really mean? And there are lots of things a duke means. So, um, yeah, I, I hope you all love it. I hope you enjoy it. Please tell me only if you did. Um, <laughs> And um, But if you did read it and you, no matter what, if you did read it and you have some time to review it online, um, reviews are really important to all of us, especially um, to new re- to new authors. So, like, if you've read a debut this week or, you, you know, if you've read a book by somebody who doesn't have a ton of reviews online if, and you have time, that would be great. Also out this week, I feel like we should say, because it so is many. like the biggest week in romance this year. It really is. It's it's bananas. So there is a book out, uh, The Scoundrel Falls Hard by my friend Sophie Jordan, friend of the pod. There is a contemporary celebrity romance out by Ivy Owens called Scandalized, if you love K-dramas. That one's for you. There is the end of the Hidden Legacy, the second Hidden Legacy trilogy. Ruby Fever comes out for all of you Alona Andrews fans. Beverly Jenkins's To Catch a Raven, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago in our anti-heroines episode, is out today. Allie Hazelwood's Love on the Brain is out today. It's so much. J.J. McAvoy's Aphrodite and the Duke is out today. Listen. I have a lot of books arriving in my mailbox. pile them all up. Winter is coming. You could, That's it. Summer is like, it's through Labor Day weekend in America. You've got it sorted. Thank you, Sarah, for being on the show this week. Thanks, Jen. You know, I'm a longtime listener. Um, no, honestly, I'm always, thank you so much. Thanks for reading this book. And thanks for always being, reading it more than once. And thanks for being my friend and also my faded name. We're very lucky to have found each other. <laughs> so this is the end of season four of Faded Names. <gasps> yeah, season five in two weeks, three weeks, three weeks. We will be appearing back in your ear holes. And we actually have some some really cool episodes to like fill in the gaps for a couple weeks. Um, our Faded, uh, a recording of our first Faded Mates Live, which is in Alexandria in July. And also we had a crossover episode with Heaving Bosoms on Burn For Me by Alona Andrews. We'll be running those. And we'll be back live on uh, Wednesday, September 14th with our first episode of Season 5. Heads up, our first read-along of Season 5 is Marrying Winterborn. I'm breaking the glass. We're doing it. Yeah. 
Although I will say you should read Cold Hearted Rake. I think, I do not think it's a real standalone. Read Cold Hearted Rake and then read Marrying Winterborn. It's kind of I've already Winterborn. read Cold Hearted Rake, so I, I'm ready. Um, but yes, Jen is suggesting, and I always suggest a reread of Lisa Kleypas, so do that. What else? Anything else that we need to say in the next? Our like, Trailblazers will be continuing. We have yes, season five. That, season five. We thought they were really cool. We thought of a bunch more people we want to talk to. So you're gonna be still hearing Trailblazers. We're gonna be doing the same thing, same bat time, same bat station. Whatever, <laughs> however you say that. I think same that's batty right. time, same batty station. Today, uh, we want to thank this week's sponsors. Thank you to Lumi Labs, creators of microdose gummies. You can uh, order microdose gummies, get 30% off your order, and free shipping using the code FATEDMATES at microdose.com. Thanks to Amazon Kindle Vela, publishers of Rebecca Zanetti's Knife's Edge series. Thanks to Alexander Harvey, author of How to Marry a Duke. And uh, as Jen said, stay tuned right now for Mary J. Wells, who is, I mean, perfect in every way, with the first two chapters of Heartbreaker. See you in September, everybody. Have a great break. For Louisa, the absolute best. Adelaide. St. Stephen's Chapel, South Lambeth, October 1834. Storm clouds, they said, brought good luck on a wedding day. The bleakness of the sky over the marriage vows, they said, would mark the bleakest point of a union. Sheets of rain, they said, would wash away any ill fortune fated for the couple, leaving only the future filled with good luck. After all, they said, weddings were the happiest of days. Times for blushing brides and fresh-faced grooms and new frocks and families full to the brim with joy at the prospect of doubling in size. What was a bit of rain against the promise of such happiness? Bad weather, they said, would make the worst of the day and the match. But what if the weather was not the worst of the day? What of the match then? That late October morning, as the rain came in sheets, thunder shaking the rafters, Miss Adelaide Trumbull stood at the altar of St. Stephen's Chapel in South Lambeth, the scents of incense and candle wax all around her, in a frock thieved in the dark of night from Mayfair's finest dressmaker, and considered the possibility that they were wrong. There was nothing blushing about Adelaide, the 21-year-old daughter of Alfie Trumbull, a brute with a fist the size of another man's face. Alfie had put that meaty weapon to good work as soon as he'd been big enough to pack a punch, and he'd built himself a small empire, such as it was, on the South Bank, the head of the Bulls, a gang of thugs and thieves named for the man who'd brought them together. Adelaide had learned fast that if she was to survive her father's violent dominion, she would have to earn her keep, and by six years old, she'd been one of the South Bank's finest nippers, with long, slim, quick fingers that could lift a pocket watch or cut a purse, her mark none the wiser. A princess of thieves. And when it came time to marry, there was no question that her father would choose the groom. That was the role of kings, was it not? To marry off their daughters for land or power, or an army made exponentially larger by the match. It did not matter 
that Adelaide was too tall and too plain, or that John Scully had absolutely no interest in her. Oh, he smiled when she came into the room, and he'd been more than willing to sample the wares, which her father had all but insisted she allow, and when he talked he did so with the easy patter of a man who knew how to catch flies with honey. But he didn't have any interest in catching Adelaide. So she expected that once she was caught, there'd be far less honey than there would be vinegar. What mattered was that Scully was the leader of The Boys, a smaller, newer gang making waves on the South Bank. More anarchy than organisation, The Boys posed a danger to residents, businesses and the kingdom belonging to Alfie Trumbull, a man who believed strongly in the adage that friends should be kept close and enemies closer. If that meant sacrificing his daughter to them, so be it. Adelaide didn't care for her father, and she highly doubted she would care for her new husband. But this was the life into which she was born, and if she was lucky, she would survive marriage to a monster better than her own mother had. Perhaps John Scully would die young. A wicked crack of thunder sounded, and it occurred to Adelaide that pondering the death of one's groom while before the parson, would likely offset the good luck of the torrential rain outside. A tiny, wild laugh bubbled out of her. No one noticed. She adjusted her spectacles and touched her fingers to her throat, where the high lace collar of the wedding gown made for another was too tight. The priest prattled away, his words a run of stuttering gibberish, born of fear of what might come if he failed in following his instructions, no doubt. Adelaide made out something about Canna of Galilee as she cast a look at the man she was to marry, rocking back and forth on his heels as though he had somewhere else to be. Her gaze slid past him to his mother, seated in the first pew, the one hiding the entrance to the underground cellar that held half-dozen cases of weapons, waiting for whatever war Alfie waged next. The older woman's gaze was stern, as though they were before the magistrate and not the minister. Adelaide's attention shifted to the others in the row. Two young women, Scully sisters, looking as though they might be rendered unconscious from the boredom of the day. Behind them, a row of men, Scully's brothers, one by blood and the rest by fire. Soon to be her brothers, too, she supposed. Hideously brutish, brows low over eyes, heavy enough to shade their noses, broken so many times over that smashed was a better term for their state. They too fidgeted. An ordinary bystander might think the movement's a result of a collective fear for souls, that a house of God was not their preferred location for a Saturday morning. But this was no ordinary house of God, and Adelaide was not an ordinary bystander. The priest continued, finding enough clarity to say something about hellfire, which Adelaide thought a bit much for a wedding, but perhaps he was attempting to turn the assembly to the light. Good luck to him. She shifted, just enough to see her father out of the corner of her eye, just enough to see that he was not watching the ceremony. Instead, he was staring over her head, past the priest, to the stained glass in the windows beyond. His meaty fingers tapped against his knee. His jaw worked as he chewed the side of his tongue. A tell that Adelaide had learned early meant she should find a way out of the room and fast. 
Squinting through her spectacles, she looked at his boots, still caked with muck from the rookery beyond. There, touching the heel of one, was the wooden handle of the club that was her father's preferred weapon. And that's when she realised that she wasn't going to be married that day. It was not to be a merger, but a conquest. Her father planned to kill her groom. She snapped her attention back to the priest, instinct taking over. There was a chalice on the altar behind him, likely made of pewter, though not heavy enough. No, she'd be better with a brass candlestick. The short one on the far side of the altar. She'd have to get there first, up two steps. Were candlesticks holy? Adelaide lowered her hand to her skirts, annoyance flaring. If she'd known she was going to have to fight, she would have protested this frock. She rolled one shoulder in a too tight dress. There was no way she would be able to swing that candlestick hard enough to do damage, and she needed to be able to do damage. What kind of animals turned a wedding into a turf war? And more importantly, what were they waiting for? If any here assembled... Adelaide rolled her eyes, of course. No one liked theatre like a lifelong criminal, thinking himself a hero. Has reason for these two to not be joined in holy matrimony. Beside her, Scully shifted, his hand slipping beneath his coat, to where he no doubt had a blade holstered. Her father wasn't the only one out for blood that day. Oh, for God's sake, she muttered. The priest turned censorious eyes on her as though no bride would ever consider speaking up at this moment. Speak now, or forever hold your peace. For a moment, silence fell, long and heavy. And for a heartbeat, Adelaide wondered if she was wrong. She held her breath as thunder boomed, filling the church, reverberating off the centuries-old stones. The war began. The assembly was on its feet, fists flying, blades unsheathing, a hat pin or two entering the fray, all punctuated by grunts and shrieks. Adelaide headed for the candlestick, nimble and quick as she'd ever been, as she'd been trained to be since she was four years old. And while she went, aiming for that brass prize, she did the other thing she'd been doing since she was four years old. She picked pockets. She was no fool and knew that she might well be on her own after this brawl, with nothing but a stolen, too-tight wedding dress and no coin. Years on the street had taught her to plan for the fight and prepare for the flight. She took three watches, one while ducking an impressive punch, and two purses heavy with coin, and shoved them up the tight sleeves of her gown on her way toward her goal. Lifting her two short skirts, she rushed up the steps past the priest, now tucked behind the altar, the safest place for a man of the cloth to hide, while his borrowed chapel became the stage for a bloody battle. A shout came from behind her, too close, and she looked back to find one of Scully's men reaching for her, red in the face. Where are you going, girl? He grabbed for the back of her gown, and the fabric stuck like skin, refusing him purchase. Adelaide increased her speed and grabbed the candlestick, immediately turning and using all the force she could muster to knock him back. Nowhere with you! He howled and grabbed her weapon, yanking her toward him in the moment before he lost consciousness. But Adelaide was ready, releasing it as he fell like a tree. She paused for a half second, less, to consider her options, her mind racing. Did she want this fight? 
Was it hers? She was saved from having to answer, a hand coming to her shoulder. Before she could turn and fight, she was pulled backward through a door hidden behind the altar. It closed with a soft snick, the sound of the battle beyond fading away, muffled by wood and stone and distance and the infernal rain, pounding high on the lead-cased windows above. The soot-covered stained glass barely filtered the dim light from the dark sky beyond. Adelaide grasped for the first weapon she could find. Spinning to face the door, she brandished the book and immediately lowered it. The woman just inside the door smiled. Decided against walloping me. I don't imagine eternal punishment is easy for those who strike nuns, Adelaide replied. Even worse for those who strike nuns with the Holy Bible. Adelaide returned the book to its place. The nun moved past her to the far side of the room, where she retrieved a hamper from a low cupboard. She set it on the table between them, next to the Bible, then stepped back from it. Adelaide eyed the basket and the woman warily. You ain't like no nun I've ever known. Have you known many nuns? She considered the question. She hadn't, but that wasn't the point. She pushed her spectacles up her nose. Who are you for? The woman's brows rose. Is that not clear? I mean, are you the bulls or the boys? The nun tilted her head. I could ask you the same question. Neither. Adelaide kept quiet. Imagine this, Adelaide Trumbull, the nun said, her blue gaze sharp and full of truth. What if I were for you? Adelaide lifted her chin. What if there was a third path, a better one? Impossible. There were no better paths for girls born in Lambeth. Not even for the princesses born there, especially not for them. High above, Adelaide found the face of one of the stained glass figures and found herself envious of the shrouded woman's position, unidentifiable, unseen by all but a very few, unimportant. Rain pounded on the window, threatening to shatter the already cracked panes of blue glass that made the figure's body. A scream from beyond penetrated the quiet of the room. You need somewhere to put your loot, do you not? The nun, who did not seem so nunnish, indicated the hamper once more. Adelaide met the woman's eyes, the trio of pocket watches heavy and warm against her skin up her sleeve. What loot? The nun lifted a knowing brow. Adelaide approached the basket, uncertain of what it would reveal, and knowing that whatever it was would change her life, possibly not for the better. Though... To be honest, it could not get much worse. She lifted the lid to reveal a small portrait in a round silver frame. She looked to the woman watching her carefully from across the room. Me. So, you know what is within was for you all along. Adelaide considered the door and what was beyond it. You knew what he planned, she said. Her father. The battle beyond. The war that would come. A nod. You and who else? A little head tilt. That comes later. How do I know there is a later? How do you know there is a later out there? The nun made a fair point. Adelaide reached into the hamper and extracted a pile of clothing. Trousers, a peaked cap, a shirt and waistcoat and coat. A black umbrella. They'll be looking for a bride, the other woman explained, 
lifting a chin in the direction of the altar, where half of Lambeth's muscle no doubt turned the church stones red. One in a stolen frock. Adelaide didn't misunderstand. The clothing was a disguise, one that would never work in the long run, but would absolutely work for the next 30 minutes. For the next 30 yards, when she opened the door and stepped into the rain. Except, there's nowhere to go, she said, shaking her head. Princesses didn't leave their kingdoms. Who were they without them? The nun nodded to the hamper. Are you sure? Adelaide peeked inside the now-empty basket to find a small blue calling card at the bottom, thick and lush, the finest paper she'd ever seen, inked with a beautiful indigo bell. Though the rectangle was the size of a calling card, there was no name on it. Only that bell and an address in Mayfair. The bell, the address, and when she turned it over, the message. It is time for you to disappear, Adelaide. Come and see me, Duchess. And like that, the third path rolled out before Adelaide, clean and clear and coveted. Turned out they were right. Rain made luck on a wedding day after all. Chapter One The South Bank Five Years Later There were any number of words London might use to describe Adelaide Frampton. North of the river, in Hyde Park and on Bond Street and in Mayfair ballrooms, when people spoke of the bespectacled distant cousin to the Duchess of Treviscan, which was rare, they used words like plain. If pressed, they might add tall or perhaps ordinary. Certainly, spinster was not out of the realm of possibility for the 26-year-old woman who had absolutely no hope of prospects, what with her flame-red hair always tucked tightly beneath a pristine cap, and the way she wore her collars high and out of fashion, her frocks drab and her face common, without rouge or coal. Barely seen, rarely heard, neither titled nor rich, never droll, lacking in charm or extraordinary skill, Uninteresting, unassuming, unremarkable, and therefore unnoticeable, allowed into Mayfair thanks only to a faraway bloodline. South of the river, however, in warehouses and laundries and workhouses, in the rookeries and streets where Adelaide had been raised, not Adelaide Frampton, but Adelaide Trumbull, she was legend. Little girls across Lambeth would tuck into the beds at night, hungry for hope and the promise of a future and their mothers and aunts and older sisters would whisper the stories of Addie Trumbull, the greatest nipper the South Bank had ever seen, fingers so fast she'd never once been caught, and a future so bright that she'd fought in the war that had merged the bulls and the boys, ensuring her father was king of both, before she'd left for a future beyond the coal clouds and the mud puddles and filth of Lambeth. Addie Trumbull, the story went, had left a princess and become a queen. Remarkable how legends grew without proof. Even in places where the soil was salted and the fields lay fallow, especially in those places. It did not matter that Addie had never returned. Someone's cousin's friend's sister worked as a maid in the new queen's court and had seen Addie there. She was married to a good rich man and slept on goose down and wore silk frocks and ate off golden plates. Sleep well, little ones, 
If you are good and learn early to cut purses and move fast, you too might have a future like Addy Trumbull. Legend, myth, luminary, unimaginable. But like all gossip from north of the river, and all stories from south of it, the truth was a little of both, and a lot of neither. And because of that, Adelaide remained a mystery in both places, which suited her quite well, as unnoticeable and unimaginable endowed her equally with the only quality she cared to have, invisibility. And so, here is the truth. Adelaide Frampton was the greatest thief London never saw. Her invisibility was on full display on that particular October afternoon in 1839, when, as the autumn sun crept low across the sky, she entered the warehouse that acted as the official headquarters of London's largest gang of muscle-for-hire, Alfred Trumbull's Bully Boys. The crew had been renamed in the wake of their violent merger on her failed wedding day with a portmanteau devised by her father, a man who knew well how an inexpensive gift could bring bad men to a cause. It had been five years since Adelaide had seen the inside of the warehouse, five years since she'd left Lambeth and begun a new life across the river. But she remembered the place as though no time had passed at all. It remained full to the brim with the gang's stolen goods, booze and jewels, silks and sterling, and a collection of firearms that should have blown them all up by now, considering the group's notorious lack of sense. Wearing a high-collared, trim-fitting navy coat over a dark shirt and drab skirts, Adelaide made her way through the building. The clothes, along with the unadorned grey cap that hid her hair, were designed for ease of movement during just this kind of activity, ensuring that when she tucked into shadows or ducked behind crates of contraband, she disappeared. Three separate patrols stayed her passage to the top floor, where her father's office sat empty. Alfie Trumbull took tea every afternoon at four o'clock at the Wild Pheasant, a bordello he owned in the shadow of Lambeth Palace. The location of the place, mere yards from where the Archbishop of Canterbury laid his head, was no doubt part of its charm for Alfie, who had always thought himself the highest of beings. The first patrol had required her to make a quick stop behind the stairs on the ground floor. The second sent her into hiding at the back corner of the warehouse, and the third had nearly caught her as she slipped inside her father's office, sliding between several large barrels of whiskey to wait them out. Five years, and while the world was changing with wild speed beyond those walls, absolutely nothing was different inside Alfie's dominion. Same patrol schedule, same hiding places, same conversations. About that had sent a boy to the surgeon the night before, but won them a decent amount of blunt. Adelaide waited for them to lumber off, grateful that her father continued to value brawn over brains when it came to his watchman. Once they were gone, Adelaide moved to Alfie's workspace and sat, stilling in surprise. Not everything was the same. Her father had bought himself a desk, one with drawers and locks, and a bright shine that Adelaide imagined gave him pride every time he sat behind it. He wouldn't be happy when he realised his locks were no match for a thief. Quickly, Adelaide extracted a snuffbox from the deep inside pocket of her coat and pulled a long gold chain from beneath the collar of her shirt. At the end of the chain hung a narrow brass tube, the tip of which she removed, 
before opening the box to reveal the heads of a dozen brass keys. In seconds, she selected the proper one and attached it to the pendant. Turning her newly created key in the desk lock, she revelled in the clean thunk of the steel tumblers within and began her search. She did not find what she was looking for in the first two drawers, nor was it in the deep locked drawer at the bottom of the heavy desk. Except... She extracted three heavy ledgers from the drawer, deep and well-balanced on casters. Her father had spared no expense, and set them on the desk, calculating their height, before pushing back in the chair and considering the exterior of the drawer itself. A little smile played across her lips. Alfie Trumbull didn't trust his boys after all. Sliding her fingers over the wood inside, Adelaide found the hidden catch in seconds, and through it to reveal the secret compartment beneath the drawer's false bottom. There you are, she whispered, triumph flaring as she lifted a tiny black book, small enough to fit in a gentleman's pocket. She opened it, confirming that it was what she sought, the locations of the eleven caches of munitions the bully boys had hidden throughout the city, along with the names of the boys assigned to each, the schedules of the changings of the guard, and the provenance of each of the weapons within, each meticulously accounted by Alfie Trumbull himself. Slipping the book into her own pocket, Adelaide moved to restore the drawer to rights before pausing, her gaze falling to the other item in the hidden compartment. A block of ordinary wood. With a little frown, she reached for it, lifting the six-inch cube. A lifetime of thieving had taught Adelaide that ordinary things were rarely that especially when her father kept them in false-bottomed drawers. And so, she did what she often did when something piqued her curiosity. She took it. The light was fading fast inside the building, so she worked quickly. Replacing the bottom of the drawer, she returned the ledger books, dismantled her skeleton key, and stood, tucking her snuff-box away, and settling the wooden cube into the crook of her arm. That doesn't belong to you. Her heart leapt into her throat as she looked to the doorway, her free hand already sliding inside her skirts to the false pocket at her thigh, headed for the blade she kept there. She preferred to remain invisible and not leave a mess on missions, but she wasn't above taking out this bruiser if she had to. He was the opposite of invisible, tall and lean, standing in the shadows just inside the office door, peaked cap pulled low over his brow, doing absolutely nothing to hide the sharp lines of his handsome face, a long straight nose and an angled jaw that appeared to have been honed by the best of bladesmiths. This was not one of her father's bruisers. Even if she hadn't been able to hear it in his proper voice, or see it in the way he held himself, as though it had never occurred to him that he did not belong in a place, even a dark warehouse owned by a hardened criminal, even if he didn't look as though he'd spent his youth learning to fence instead of fight. It was the nose that gave it away. He'd never once spent a night hungry. Never once had to brawl for his safety or his supper. Never once had to steal, because he had obviously been born into all he had. The man was money, and he was going to get them both caught. She stood and headed around the side of the desk for the door, refusing to look at him or speak to him, considering her options. She couldn't knife money, but she could certainly serve him a facer if he didn't let her leave the room. 
except when she got to the door, he stopped her. He didn't touch her. He simply set one hand to the door jam and said, once again, that does not belong to you. And what? she retorted. It belongs to you? He stiffened at the words, as though he was offended that she would deign to reply to him. Definitely money, with absolutely no claim on this place. And he thought to tell her, Adelaide Frampton, the best thief Lambeth had ever seen, what she could and could not steal. The man should know his betters. It does, as a matter of fact. Surprised, she lifted her gaze to his face, past the rough scruff on his jaw and the low brim of his cap a meagre attempt at a disguise, as Adelaide recognised him instantly and bit back. A groan. He wasn't just money, he wasn't just some toff, and he most definitely wasn't handsome. The man in front of her was the Duke of Claiborne, the absolute worst of the aristocracy, with a stiff upper lip and a stick up his... Oi! The shout came from outside the door, where she could see a decent-sized watchman headed their way, beady eyes trained on her. So much for invisible. Damn it, Claiborne, she whispered, her grip tightening on the box. Of course you would turn up here and see us both killed. He couldn't conceal the surprise on his face. You recognise me? Of course she did. She'd know this particular duke anywhere. He was impossible not to know. The last time he'd been this close to her, they'd been north of the river in the heart of Mayfair, and he'd given Adelaide a scathing set-down. The kind, arrogant, rich, titled men adored delivering with cool disdain to women far below their station. He was lucky she wasn't in the habit of brandishing her blade at dinner. Though, if anyone could drive her to it, it was this man. Stern and cold and absolutely rubbish at remaining unnoticed. You there! What are you doing in Alfie's office? Adelaide didn't wait. Instead, she took off, ducking under his arm and flying down the hallway away from the guard. Shit, boys! It's intruders up here! Like you, she said, before flying down the stairs to the first floor of the warehouse, calculating that she had less than a minute to get herself lost in the shadows. If she could get herself to the far end of the building, where the large door stood open to the fast-darkening street, she might be able to disappear. Except she wasn't alone. The Duke of Claiborne was matching her move for move, light on his feet and faster than she would have thought a man of his size would be, but no less difficult to hide, which was not her problem. She tossed him a look. Get gone, Duke! Not a chance! With an irritated sigh, Adelaide checked behind her as they exited the stairwell. Their original pursuer, halfway down the stairs from above, and three others coming up from below. Biting back a curse, she headed down a long row of stacked crates, as far as she dared before tucking herself behind one. He slid in beside her, barely there a moment before he inhaled, clearly planning to speak. Adelaide covered his mouth with her hand, the scruff of his day-old beard rough soft against her fingers. Not that she was interested in how he felt against her fingers. If the fire in his blue gaze was any indication, he wasn't interested in that either. He was annoyed, no doubt, that she was taking charge. Well, he'd have to get used to it if he wanted out of here unscathed. She shook her head and pointed to beyond the stack of crates, where two of Alfie Trumbull's guards thoroughly searched the passageway 
Leaning in, she whispered close to his ear, barely a sound. Can you fight? As she hadn't removed her hand from his lips, he raised a superior brow in reply. His offended answer, clear as a bell. Of course I can fight. He likely couldn't fight worth a damn. Aristocrats were generally useless, but there wasn't a choice. Adelaide hadn't been caught in 16 years, and she wasn't about to start now. The men approached. Releasing him, she shifted silently on the balls of her feet and reached beneath her skirts, slipping her blade from the sheath inside her boot with one hand, clutching the wooden cube in the other. She put a shoulder to the stack of crates that shielded them. Five yards. He shifted with her, matching her stance, facing her, his shoulder to the rough-hewn wood. Two. The leather of his gloves creaked as his fingers curved into fists. He'd need them. What they were about to do would bring every guard in the place. One. With a prayer that he could indeed fight, she nodded once, twice. Now, he mouthed. As one, they pushed, knocking the tower of boxes toward the pair of bruisers that were nearly on top of them. Twin shouts were punctuated with an ear-splitting crash, but Adelaide didn't stay to look at their handiwork. Instead, she ran, getting nearly as far as the skeleton stairs at the front of the warehouse, the ones that led to the streets outside and freedom. Claiborne was on her heels, and though she did not look back, no time, she did call back to him, This is no place for a duke! Ideal place for a lady, is it? he retorted. She wasn't a lady, but she didn't correct him, telling herself that it was because she was too busy tearing down the stairs. She headed for the door, where two guards were waiting. Without hesitating, she clocked one in the head with a wood block. I was doing just fine before you turned up. She ducked as the other man swung a ham-sized fist at her head. She heard it connect with a heavy thwack, and something she didn't care for had her turning back to see what had happened. Claiborne had caught the blow in one large hand. That wasn't very gentlemanly, he said, all calm, the thug's eyes going wide at the words, and you're lucky you didn't strike her. He punctuated the words with an excellent facer, dropping the villain to his knees. Her eyes went wide in surprise as she stared at the unconscious man. What if he had struck me? When the Duke did not reply, she added, So you can fight. He tossed her another irritated look. I don't lie. Of course he took offence to that. Honestly, it was surprising the whole of the South Bank hadn't gone up in flames when the Duke of Claiborne arrived like the Angel of Judgment. She'd barely had time to roll her eyes at him before they were off again, out of the warehouse and into the street beyond. Adelaide quickly ducking behind a pile of rubbish and slipping her knife back into the pocket of her skirts, where a scabbard was fastened tight at her thigh. Claiborne watched her, and she ignored the heat that somehow came from his cool gaze. The Duchess of Treviscan's cousin, are you? She hid the surprise that flared when he identified her. For a woman who was practised at remaining unnoticed and invisible, the Duke of Claiborne's undivided focus proved unnerving, especially since it was clear her secret was out, and he was fully capable of returning to Mayfair and telling the whole of London that she was nothing close to an aristocrat's cousin. Still, Adelaide brazened it through. What? 
You don't have remarkable fruits on the family tree? He watched her for a moment and then said, None so remarkable as you. Oh, she'd return to those five words at a later time. But now Adelaide had somewhere to be. This is as far as I take you, Duke. They won't come for an aristocrat in daylight, but you'd best hurry if you want to avoid meeting Lambeth's finest. Before he could reply, she was off, disappeared into the afternoon throngs, knowing that if she were caught, there would be no quarter. For Adelaide Frampton, nay, Trumbull, daylight in Lambeth was cold comfort, as her father and the bully boys ran all of the South Bank, and she would find no help anywhere here. Not because she didn't have supporters, but because they lacked the strength to go up against London's largest gang of street thugs. She understood that truth intimately. She'd only gained the strength to fight the bully boys once she'd left the muck of Lambeth. So she didn't blame those who had no means to do the same. Within minutes, the felled brutes in the warehouse would turn into half a dozen outside. So Adelaide turned north, aiming to disappear into the narrow labyrinthine streets of the South Bank, the maze she'd learned before she'd learned her own name. Unfortunately, her pursuers had received the same lessons. She'd made a half-dozen turns before she was trapped, somewhere between St George's Circus and Newcut. One of Alfie's men stood, like a silent, massive sentry on one end, and two more approached, blades out from behind. The big one tilted his chin at the cube beneath Adelaide's arm. You've taken something that don't belong to you, girl. She touched a hand to her cap hoping it would keep her from being recognised. Five years away didn't make a new face and didn't change the colour of one's hair. More than one thing, booze counting, his companion growled. Adelaide would wager all she had that these two had no idea what she carried. She had no idea herself, and she was surely the cleverest of the assembly. Before she could say as much, however, the brute behind her spoke. Sit down, girl and no one gets hurt. She definitely wasn't giving it back now. Adelaide extracted her watch, checking the time. Damn, she was going to be late. I think that if I set this down, someone will absolutely get hurt. He grinned, showing several missing teeth, no doubt knocked out. Why not try it and see? The trio closed in on her, their lack of hesitation leaving little time for a body to calculate its next move, but Adelaide was no ordinary foe. Within seconds, she knew how hard she would have to swing to knock out teeth, how long it would take for the others to reach her, and what she'd have to do to bring them down. Angles were measured, force calculated, timing predicted. She lowered herself to one knee, set the oak cube to the ground. That's it, love, teeth said, closer now. Her hand moved, searching for the false pocket in her skirts, aiming for the blade strapped to her thigh, and then... Hang on, he said softly, the tone shifting, no longer full of disdain and loathing, now full of something else, something far more dangerous. Recognition. You're... he began, but before he could finish the thought, all hell broke loose. Teeth's attention shot over her head, even as Adelaide turned to look at the commotion behind her. The two brutes who'd been heading for her suddenly locked in a battle with the Duke of Claiborne. 
damn it. This was a man who had a home in Mayfair and a seat in Parliament. Did he have nothing better to do than follow her through Lambeth? Returning to the situation at hand, she reached down for the block of wood at her feet, clasped it in two hands, and brought it up sharply to knock teeth back. Adelaide was running before he cracked his head against the cobblestones. A shout sounded behind her. She shouldn't look. She hadn't asked Claiborne to get involved. She certainly didn't require a protector. This would serve him right. That, and she had to get out of there before someone else recognised her. She looked, anyway, just in time to see one of the bully boys land a heavy blow to the Duke of Claiborne's face. He came back swinging like his life depended on it. And it did, she supposed. Her father's men were not known for mercy. The Duke held his own, however, landing a tight jab and another, sending one of his opponents to his knees before turning to the other, throwing a wicked uppercut, knocking the man off balance and straight back into the closest wall to sink slowly toward the ground. Adelaide watched until the body slumped over, then turned her attention to Claiborne. Impressive. She could not see his eyes in the afternoon shadows but she could feel his gaze on her as he studied her before speaking. The word so even and deep, one would never know he'd been in an alleyway brawl moments earlier. You're welcome. Ever the arrogant bastard. Her gaze narrowed on him. Was I to have thanked you? Yes. A muscle flickered in his jaw as he stepped over one of his foes, his movements long and graceful. Not that Adelaide noticed. At all? For what? He waved at the ground. Is it unclear? She considered the men writhing at his feet. Ah! I am to thank you for your tribute, as though you are a cat and you have delivered a fat rat to my kitchen door. I thought you might thank me for saving your pretty... Her eyes went wide as he cut himself off. Why, your grace, were you about to use foul language? He scowled at her. I confess, you tempt me. She'd liked to tempt him. Now where had that come from? He extended a hand toward her. My box, please. So it was a box, of course it was. She looked down at it, turning it over in her hands as she backed toward the exit to the alleyway, stepping gingerly over the prone body of her own opponent, putting distance between them. What's in it? His lips flattened into a thin line and she ignored the way she noticed. Nothing of import. Alfie Trumbull thought it was important enough to steal it. Alfie Trumbull thought it was worth enough money to steal it. Except Alfie didn't like robbery. He didn't think it was worth the risk compared to broader, more lucrative crimes. So whatever was in this box, it was worth money. And a great deal of money if her father had risked stealing it from a duke. Even if it wasn't worth money, it had brought a duke to Lambeth. So, whatever was inside was a secret worth having. As Adelaide had made a life of trading in powerful men's secrets, and was currently very interested in secrets adjacent to this particular powerful man, she wasn't about to give this one up easily. She tossed Claiborne a crooked smile. Those are the same thing on the South Bank, Duke, but here we play by simple rules. She who finds, keeps. With that, she ran again, 
heading from the alleyway at a clip, aiming for the docks. Of course he followed. It's private, he ground out as he kept pace with her, the words tortured from him, as though he resented having to speak them, which of course he would. This was not a man who had deigned to share with someone as common as Adelaide. That much is clear, or you wouldn't be skulking about a well-guarded warehouse playing fancy dress, she slid him a look. You can't possibly have thought you wouldn't be noticed. He ran a hand over his beard. Forgive me if I'm not as deft at disguise as you. He sent a cool look over her from head to toe, though Adelaide did not feel so cool under his scrutiny. You thought you could simply walk in there, thieve from the head of one of London's most powerful gangs and walk out? In fact, I was doing just that until you sent the entire afternoon sideways. I was protecting you, he growled, matching her annoyance with his own. Something thrummed through her at the words, stern and direct, and she found herself wondering when she'd last encountered a man's protective instincts. In her experience, men left her to her own devices. She wasn't sure how the alternative felt, honestly. Strange. Warm. Not that she would ever admit it. Really? And how's that gone? Protecting me? Did you fail to notice that I brought down several men big as houses? Or do you require new spectacles? Adelaide adjusted the eyewear in question higher upon her nose and made a right turn, then a quick left, sliding into another alleyway. My eyesight is impeccable. She was tiring. Skirts were heavy and unwieldy, yet another way the world kept women back. One hand fell to her waist, where wide silk ribbons tucked in at her waist. He followed, keeping pace with ease. And what? You were going to take on a warehouse full of bruisers after stealing from them? He nodded to the cube in the crook of her elbow. Poor choice of weapon. She had to get away from him. He saw too much, asked too much. She should give him the box and cut him loose. It was what he wanted, and it wasn't as though she needed it. She'd only taken it because it intrigued her. The problem was, now that she knew it belonged to him, it intrigued her even more. Which was as irritating as he was, frankly. She tucked the box under her arm and increased her speed. A girl must make do in this modern age. So sorry, Duke, but I have somewhere to be and I do not have time for you. With a tug, she pulled the final fastening at the waist of her drab grey skirts, the fabric flying out behind her, revealing a pair of slim navy trousers adorned with a thigh holster for her blade and tall leather boots, releasing her to unencumbered speed. He made a sound of utter surprise behind her, and she dearly wished she could turn to see the shock on his stern face. Resisting the urge, Adelaide slipped into the narrow gap ahead, grateful for the element of surprise and the additional speed the loss of her skirts had provided. She had gained enough ground to topple a pile of barrels and leave her gentleman scoundrel behind. Not her gentleman scoundrel. She wanted nothing to do with him. His curse followed her, but he did not. Triumphant, Adelaide burst from the dim light into the late afternoon sun of the Thames, hard at work, tied high and packed with boats and people, hurrying to and fro to complete their work before dark. She looked upriver, relieved. She'd make her appointment after all. She slowed her pace, 
removing her coat and cap and tossing them behind a pile of wood crates, sliding her snuff box and Alfie's book into her trouser pockets, before detaching a peaked cap from where it had been pinned at her waist. Pulling the brim low over her eyes, she lowered her hips and broadened her stride. The woman in the drab dress was gone, replaced by an ordinary dock worker, tall and slim, and headed straight for the riverbank, invisible again. She leapt down from the riverbank onto the nearest barge, heavy and piled high with coal. A shout sounded, surprise from one of the men on the far end of the boat, but Adelaide was already gone, leaping down to the next barge, piled high with sacks of mortar. There wasn't time for any of this. No time for being chased by bully boys. Certainly no time for thinking about sharp, angled jaws and dukes who leapt into the fray. No time for distracting men who caused the fray. Another leap. Another boat. This one already half empty of its cargo. There was no traffic like the traffic on the Thames at high tide. No better place to disappear either. Adelaide had learned that young. She tucked herself behind a high tower of crates and consulted her watch before looking up river. The flat-bottomed barge bobbed and swayed as someone landed on the deck. Adelaide stilled, slipping her blade from the strap at her thigh and setting her cargo to the ground. Damn it! For a lifetime she'd been able to disappear in a crowd and suddenly the skill was gone. The Duke of Claiborne had somehow ruined it, as though in seeing her he'd made it so the rest of the world could too. She adjusted her grip on her knife and listened trying to hear her pursuer's heavy steps over the sounds of the working river. Peeked round the edge of the crates. Damn it, she muttered to herself before narrowing her gaze on him, tall and strong, and not remotely worse for wear considering he'd been dockside brawling for the last three quarters of an hour. You've missed the turn for Westminster, Duke. Hmm, he said, the noise low in his throat and rather delicious, if Adelaide were telling the truth. She shouldn't like it. He was the Duke of Claiborne. She'd spent a year not liking him. He stepped into her hiding place and collected the cube at her feet. Stealing is a crime. Are you going to call the magistrate? No, he said softly. But what did you intend to steal? He was close enough to touch, and Adelaide knew she should step away from him. Even if he wasn't a duke, it was still daylight, and half the Thames could see. No one on the Thames was watching. Who says I was stealing anything? There was something about him, about this, something wild and unfettered and exciting and dangerous. He stepped closer, his words low and dark as he continued. You don't have to admit it. I know a thief when I see one. He reached for her and she held her breath, wondering where he'd touch her what the leather of his glove would feel like on her skin. Except he didn't touch her skin. Instead, he said softly, Red. For a moment, she didn't understand, and then she felt a tug at her temple, where a lock of her hair had escaped. She reached up, knocking his hand away and pushing it behind her ear. He watched the movements, his gaze unreadable, and Adelaide went hot with his discovery and the sudden realisation that he was close and... Warm and he smelled fresh like citrus, a scent that did not come with the South Bank.
It was not a scent for Adelaide. Adelaide Frampton was a woman for working days, and she had a keen understanding of what that meant, of what she might hope to claim. This man was not for her, which made him a wicked temptation, like sweets and silks and purses and pocket watches. Like all of them put together, too much for a thief to resist. So she tilted her face up to his and stole him. For a moment, a heartbeat, intending to give him back. Except it wasn't a heartbeat. Oh, it might have been when he froze, stiffening the moment her lips touched his. He sucked in a breath, her breath, and she wondered if she'd made a mistake, wondered if he might clasp her by the arms and push her away. She wouldn't have been surprised. Kissing in full view of London was not for Adelaide Frampton, a noticeable plain Jane, nor was it for Addie Trumbull, an imaginable legend. Except when he set one hand to her, holding tight to the wooden cube with the other, he didn't push her away. Oh, for a moment she felt the hesitation in his grasp as though he considered it, but then he took over. His strong arm came around her back, securing her against him as he lifted a hand to her face, gloved thumb brushing along the line of her jaw, then stroking up over her cheek as he took her in hand, tilting her to gain better access to her mouth. Suddenly it seemed very much that he was the thief and she the prize. And there, on the banks of the River Thames, for all of working London to see, Adelaide let him thieve, giving herself up to this kiss she had started and he had joined, like none she'd ever experienced. This stern, unyielding man kissed like a practised and superior scoundrel. Not that Adelaide complained. Instead, she pressed closer, one hand coming to his chest, warm and broader than it seemed in the waistcoat and shirt sleeves he wore. She sighed at the feel of his breath, at the heavy scruff of beard that roughened his sharp jawline, at his lips, delivering on the temptation they'd promised. He took advantage of that sigh, thankfully, stroking his tongue over her open lips, sucking her bottom lip between his own, worrying it with his teeth before soothing it with his tongue and licking into her, just once, like he knew he shouldn't, like he couldn't resist. Just as Adelaide knew she shouldn't, just as Adelaide couldn't resist. Daylight be damned, docks be damned, duke be damned. A bell rang in the distance. Damn! She pulled away at the sound, and a growl of displeasure sounded deep in his chest as he chased her lips for a heartbeat, as though her retreat had been a mistake. It certainly felt like one. Because suddenly, he did not seem so much a duke. Perhaps it was the sunset, the way the light had gilded the entire river, stealing away reality and leaving nothing but this man, who was somehow far beyond the starched, unpleasant duke, tall and impossibly handsome and kissed like he never intended to stop, which would have been more than fine with her. Adelaide adjusted her spectacles, knocked askew by their embrace, and wondered if she was going mad. Because it was on the tip of her tongue to suggest he not stop when he said, I shouldn't have done that. The light shifted, and reality returned, along with the unpleasant confirmation of what Adelaide had always known, that she was Adelaide Frampton, 
and he was the Duke of Claiborne, and whatever this was, it was an enormous mistake for both of them. One that, if discovered by Mayfair, would ruin more than Adelaide's prospects for dinner invitations. Luckily, she had a clear path to keeping the man quiet. She ran her fingertips over his lips, liking the way his eyes closed at the touch, his dark lashes impossibly long. No, she said softly, almost sad. You shouldn't have. And then she stepped from his embrace, her hand running along the corded muscles of his forearm to the wooden curiosity in his hands, the one she'd already stolen and was therefore by rights hers. Taking advantage of his surprise, she reclaimed it and turned for the edge of the barge, the dark churning waters of the Thames threatening several yards below. Even without skirts, the river would take her away. What? His question faded into a harsh shout as she leapt. No! Adelaide! She landed on the deck of the small riverboat as he shouted the last. The broad-shouldered man at the helm of her new conveyance pushed off from the barge with a long pole, putting too much river between the two vessels for anyone to follow her. Even a man with legs as long as Claiborne's. She nodded her thanks to the captain of the boat, and he tipped his hat in her direction. Neither spoke the other's name. Too many watchful gazes on the river, and one in particular above. He'd called her Adelaide. Adelaide dipped under the canopy that shielded the rest of the boat from the world at large. It took all she had to resist looking back, to keep from confirming that he watched, to feel his keen focus once more. It was nice to be noticed.